episode 64, Show Me the Value. I speak with Paul Pachter about Pharma's quest to capture and communicate the value their drugs deliver. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. My guest today, Paul Pachter, has worked in the pharmaceutical industry for over 25 years. He's seen the industry undergo a few sea changes during his tenure, which has given Paul an opportunity to show off his skill at strategically navigating change. Today we discuss, from pharma's point of view, the consolidation of payers and providers, new payment and delivery models, and also the growing importance of patient decision-making. Paul gives us some advice on what it's going to take for pharma to go toe-to-toe with other powerful healthcare stakeholders moving forward. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Paul. Stacey, thank you for having me today, and I'm really pleased to be a part of the podcast. We've had many guests on the podcast talk about changes in the healthcare industry, And to a large extent, everyone agrees on the sort of factual nature of what's going on. It's apparent pretty quickly, however, how those changes are prioritized and interpreted in sort of vastly different ways, depending upon the unique lens of the guests and the business that they're in. So let's hear Pharma's interpretation of the story. What's going on out there? First of all, I think this is a very exciting time in healthcare. It's a rapidly changing marketplace that has greater complexity, more decision makers, changing influence. And from a pharma perspective, there's new criteria for success. Criteria built around a value proposition or the basis for differentiation of your product, an introduction strategy of how to bring your product to market. And third, having distinct competencies that allow you to do that well. So maybe let's start with what is going on out there and then talk about each one of those things sort of individually and then drill down as we go. So the first thing that you had mentioned was this idea of consolidation out there in the industry. Do you want to touch on that? Yes, there's consolidation occurring really across the continuum of reimbursement and delivery. But specifically starting at the payer side, we see incredible consolidation occurring with the insurance industry, Aetna purchasing Humana, WellPoint and Sigma, or Anthem and Cigna. And then from the PBM side, really the big three control quite a bit of the business. So you've got these payers, like the example that you had mentioned with Edna and Humana, and we can think of a number of different examples. How does that impact pharma? Okay. The Well, what they are doing now is that there's a smaller number of more powerful entities in the marketplace with this appetite for management. And this is some of the things that they're doing is narrowing drug formularies to the point of having certain agents in a therapeutic class not even covered. They're narrowing their provider network, so less and less doctors in the network. There's techniques around delays in coverage and formulary review of new products. 
less grandfathering, and stricter prior authorizations, prior authorizations that now include documentation in terms of lab tests being sent to them, is there documented failure, or is there a contingent use in terms of how patients are doing? Is the drug working? Are they staying at certain adherence levels? And essentially what they're looking to do is hold down or keep costs predictable. The first thing that would happen, patient goes into the doctor's office, they get prescribed generic one. Then I know that you were talking about, for example, failure. And what failure means is that the patient is taking the generic and then they take it for a period of time and either their cholesterol doesn't go down or maybe they have side effects. Is that what failure constitutes? Correct. And then if they don't meet certain criteria, they have to go through a certification with the insurance company as to why this patient is an appropriate candidate for therapy. So if you are a pharma company, what you're thinking of here is, wow, a patient really has to go through, I mean, it might be six months from the time of initial diagnosis before a patient who might be a candidate for the product actually gets on the product. It's a pretty long cycle. Correct. I'm assuming that this is where the the value prop comes in, you know, why it's so important to have a value prop, because if there's no, as you say, criteria or clear criteria, then I could see how that would be an issue. Uh, In fact, as we were talking, I just pulled up the Aetna prior authorization, and it's an onerous process that they have the patients, they're going to require patients to have an elevated LDL after treatment with a maximum tolerated dose of high-potency statins, likewise a diagnosis of, in some cases, the heterozygous familiar hypocholesteremia backed up even by DNA evidence of an LDL receptor mutation. So those are significant steps that they are putting in place to ensure that the patient is an appropriate candidate for this kind of therapy. Now you've got these payers that have consolidated, as you said, and now they're very powerful and they're really controlling access to patients. Then the other piece, Stacey, is that the patient may have a high copay or coinsurance for the drug. So that's now the implication of the patient becoming an important decision maker in their own care. So from the pharma perspective, the companies need to be laying out a very, very strong value proposition. And by this is meeting new standards for formulary evaluation. Is your drug better than, say, the current standard of care? Uh, Focus on, say, clinical endpoints or outcomes. And no longer simply saying, I have a novel new mechanism is enough for a product to be covered. Costs are already on the table, with, especially in oncology, with you know, guidelines and, for example, the ASCO value project. But essentially, everyone takes into account the element of costs. And for a manufacturer, the work needs to start very early in the development process to meet these advanced formulary decision-making criteria. So it's a well-laid-out clinical trial program, and it's clinical endpoints that also include health economics and outcomes data. For instance, showing the impact on the drug on functionality of the patient, their ability to get around, have a normal life or their resource utilization. So what are by taking this product, what are you doing to cut down on side effects, potential emergency room visits, or even hospitalizations, doing that better than the current standard of care? 
you know, it's funny because people tend to imagine pharma reps as descending like a swarm of locusts on prescribing physicians, you know, like giving them pens and buying them lunch and hoping that they'll prescribe a drug for their patient. You know, at best, I suppose we could consider that an exaggeration or at worst, let's consider it a model from the past. So it sounds like what you're saying is that given this, the consolidation and other changes in the healthcare industry, that there is, would you say, increasing focus, maybe less on prescribing physicians and maybe more on those entities that control access to the patient or perhaps the patient itself? I think it's the right balance of the marketing mix that clearly the physician is still a decision maker who writes the drug, but the increase, but essentially the market takes into account decision points of efficacy, safety, um, impact on health economics, as well as costs and other decision. We talked about that with more decision makers changing how that influences the selection of the product. Decision makers, yes, the provider, yes, the payer, but then also an important component there now is the patient with narrow formularies, higher copays. So essentially, what's the what is in for me for taking this new this new product? Copay. It's all about supply and demand. That the higher a, a drug copay, the fewer patients that you're going to get that take or continue to take a drug. Correct. So let's talk about this the the idea of of pharma coming up with a new value prop for a sec. I heard someone interviewed about business growth, and they were talking specifically about Kodak and Kodak's fail. Um, And the point, one of the points that this guy made was that Kodak failed for two key reasons, but one of them was that they misjudged the business that they were actually in. Kodak was not in the camera film business. The business that they were in was the capturing precious moments business. And that misunderstanding was a huge reason why they crashed and burned. Do you feel that, you know, in the context of this value prop conversation, do you feel that pharma needs to think harder about the business that they're actually in as they contemplate their value prop moving forward? I think it's beyond just the pill, but it's really the impact of your pill and services on a given population and what are you doing in conjunction with key customers to actually improve patient care. And I think that's the aligning driver that allows pharma to work with other entities, whether it be payer, provider, patients. What are we doing together to improve patient care? What are some examples of things that you have seen work or not work? Probably, I think the the area that we have to be focused on a little bit more is thinking through an understanding of the patients, patient journey in terms of the disease, from diagnosis to discussion of treatment options, how do you stay on therapy? So we call that the patient journey and having a very intimate knowledge of the patient journey. And then the second, as I have a product that's going to come to market to improve patient care, so what does that look like in terms of the actual evidence that I bring to the table? So differentiation is going to be dependent on stronger evidence 
and that evidence where it gets positioned in treatment guidelines and pathways. Let's talk about that a little bit. You know, in the past, drugs in order to get FDA clearance obviously had to do clinical trials to prove their efficacy. In other words, this reduces blood pressure, you know, five points or or whatever it does. What is the difference between that clinical trial type of, in quotes, evidence and the evidence that you're talking about I think it's additional information. So I, I like to think of it as a bit of a continuum that says, what are some of the advanced formulary uh, decision-making criteria? Right now, health plans or payers, many of them turn to the KOLs who really conduct the clinical trials as they make evaluations and, and get just, their just, input. Just to interject, KOLs, key opinion leader? Key opinion leaders, decision-makers in some of the large academic medical centers who are conducting clinical trials. So many of these people are actually serving as consultants to the payer side. And payers are moving from simply efficacy safety, so does a drug work, to advanced formulary decision-making criteria. So does it work any better than the standard of care? So that's kind of a comparative effectiveness research assessment. And then to the third, What's the value? If it works better than the standard of care, what am I paying for this product? And does it really uh, necessitate the cost of what's being asked to the value that it brings to the table? And I think that's the way to be thinking of differentiation and stronger evidence and positioning things in pathways. And the other point that's critical is that you have to have a robust development program. The fact that saying from when I launch, I need to be thinking of how do I keep advancing the science behind my drug and answering sometimes the smaller questions that uh, clinicians or payers would have, but you need to keep generating evidence to show as a basis for differentiation and to show what your product does to improve patient care. And increasingly, it's not just your product, it's the services that you're wrapping around the product that is also very important, such as education, side effect management, and clearly reimbursement support is critical. Let's just circle back to one of the very first things that you said about comparative effectiveness. This would be my choice as a payer. I'm thinking to myself, all right, I got this really expensive drug on the one side, and then I got these cheap generics on the other side. The onus is on the pharma company to show me unequivocally, that actually prescribing the more expensive drug is less expensive in the long run or produces better quality healthcare in the long run than what would seem to be the, the more instinctively less expensive route, which is to go with the less expensive product. Correct. And I think an important component, as you outlined all that, is that the manufacturer has to clearly define what is the right patient population for this product. Talk about that a little bit. You know, what exactly do you mean by right patient population and how does that improve a pharma company's ability to do that comparative effectiveness study? The less data that you have, probably that limits your patient population the more you take into account distinct patient populations and generate data to show that the drug is it works, it's safe, 
it improves functionality or it reduces resource utilization, and you broaden that population, that improves your chances of uh, the drug being used more broadly. What you're saying is that if I am a patient that, you know, I'm kind of going back to what you said earlier about making sure that the clinical characteristics of the patient are appropriate. You said that that was part of the formulary criteria. So in other words, if I'm a patient and I've got certain genetic markers, for example, and I'm very, very sick, then proving that a drug has an impact on that narrow slice of patients is a whole lot easier than saying, oh, it's good for everybody. You know, even if they're mildly sick, they should be taking this really expensive drug. Exactly. As we were talking about the payer organizations, the other thing I'm kind of interested in is what does pharma think about consolidating providers and and these sort of merged entities? You know, I was interviewed a guest recently and he was talking about a number of entities across the country where payers and providers have ganged up and created these sort of hybrid institutions or, you know, hybrid organizations. And as providers are assuming more risk, I mean, that's just kind of the natural way of things anyway. Does pharma have a different sort of strategy for those large provider organizations, you know, are they, in general, do you feel like the industry is equipped to work with provider decision makers above prescribing physicians? Yeah, I think that's really one of the new competencies that the industry has to come up to speed very, very quickly. Because the change in terms of consolidation, new payment, new delivery models, that's not one size fits all. It's occurring in different regions, different ways around the country. So it's probably really, it is very important for manufacturers to have a very, very strong segmentation strategy and to be able to apply it in terms of which organization organizations they need to be working with. But the dynamic that you bring up in consolidation is really being driven that the hospitals acquiring doctor practices and merging is really to build critical mass in a local marketplace. And why they're doing that is to gain greater leverage with vendors. So with pharma, are you, do you have critical mass in terms of your product market share? Is it something that they want to use? They're doing it in terms of gaining access to patients, reducing operating costs, and finally, a lot of the consolidation is to get better reimbursement rates from the payers for their system because they have critical mass in a marketplace. That's interesting. So just like you were saying before about how merging payers creates a new power dynamic for pharma. I mean, pharma used to be the the big kid on the block. They used to be able to walk into a payer and name their price. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, you know, the, the the power was with pharma and now both on the payer side and it sounds like the provider side as well, you're starting to get some, um, the hegemon might not be the hegemon anymore in the relationship. Right. And what we see on the provider side is that they're looking for a supplier that has critical mass, but also has an understanding of their populations And so what's required to effectively work with these organizations that no longer the single physician is a decision making, the decision making that's occurring in these large hospital systems is more of a team based decision making and a growing focus on value based care 
and rewarding outcomes. And so this is a whole new competency for both the provider side, a, a mindset in terms of doctors, how they work together, uh, treatment teams to provide very, very effective care for distinct patient populations. And the driver for all of this is the new payment models that are being tested in the marketplace. So there's shared savings, episodes of care, and to the point of assumption of risk for a certain patient population. So those are the new payment models. However, the marketplace hasn't shifted to this. It's all occurring at different stages or different payment models being used. So the hospital side of the business still is maximizing fee-for-service, but they're also building the competencies and infrastructure to provide this population-based care. And population-based care is an entirely different competency that rewards outcomes as opposed to the reward being built on the number of procedures you do. And here, too, the hospital system, they need to know which populations are they focused on, who are the patients that are the high utilizers of a certain disease, what is their age, their sex, their demographics, and how is it that we're going to look to better get our hands around costs to more effectively engage these patients. Yeah, I've heard it said the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. <laughs> so. Correct. And, you know, there's some hospitals that in their local market, they're also, as they assume risk, they're going directly to employers in their market and contracting with them. So they're acting like insurance companies. So the point being is that the manufacturer has to have a process to prioritize which markets and which entities are the leading entities that are moving down this path. And how do I work with these customers to build these new competencies that are going to be needed to ensure my future success? But let's just level set a sec here, because if I am going to name, at least from the sales and marketing side, organizations that are forward thinking and incredibly innovative and, you know, on the vanguard, I don't know if pharmaceutical manufacturers would be first on the list. You know, they tend to, let's just say, be late majority or sort of laggards as it relates to, you know, snapping on trends. Given this new environment, you know, one of constant change. I mean, it's not even like, you know, back in the old days, you could spot the beginning and end of change. You're like, OK, here's one change that's happening and then track that change from its initiation till it's finished. You can't even do that anymore because the entire landscape is in flux. How would you advise, uh, you know, a pharma company which is hesitant to change that has as little idea of, of anybody? I mean, obviously, they have immense research capabilities and, and just immense, very smart organizations which are under, you know, which they can draw from. But nonetheless, nobody can predict what is how this whole thing is going to shake out. You know, what advice do you have if you are a manager in a pharma organization trying to figure out a number of the things that you're talking about? I and mean, how do you deal with this? Yeah, it's and it, it's it's a organizational commitment to understanding this customer segment of, you know, whether you're called integrated delivery network, integrated clinical networks, uh, accountable care organizations, it's large 
hospital systems is the first thing. And then which are the large systems that I have to work with in a given marketplace because they're building new competencies that is going to affect the selection of my products because the physicians who previously were community-based, many of those practices uh, are now affiliated or owned by the hospital system. And traditionally, manufacturers struggled to effectively engage the integrated delivery networks. They always say they're important, they have impact, but many times the engagement strategy was not clear that they had different departments or different sales organizations calling on them, potential overinvestment in uh, personnel. And that no longer can occur. Really, what's needed is a comprehensive strategy and adjusted value proposition to capitalize on this opportunity. And there's probably four things they need to be considering here when they when a manufacturer says, well, I need to change how I'm doing things. The first is a rigorous segmentation and a prioritization process that looks at the size, influence, and impact of this organization in a given marketplace. And a key component here in the segmentation, it needs to be independent analytics that is a clear analytical group as opposed to sometimes it's driven by the sales organization, the managed market organization, and a lot more, how would you say, gut goes into the analytics versus data. The second is, as you part of the segmentation, is understanding payer-provider relationship mapping. Are there target populations in these IDNs? What are their demographics, disease state focus? How is decision-making done in this organization? Decision-making really by specialty, cardiovascular decisions, oncology decisions. So based on the importance of my therapeutic categories, understanding how the specialists or primary care physicians affiliated with that organization make decision-makings. And then finally, how do they make decisions on products in terms of their own guidelines and how are they implementing those guidelines? So those are all the things that need to take into account as to narrowing down the target list of integrated delivery networks. The second piece here is what are the new competencies that these uh, organizations uh, are re requiring? And so, when you say organizations, do you mean pharma companies or their customers? Their customers. This would be the provider side of the business. So one of the things there is competencies in population-based care. And manufacturers can build, bring a lot of information to that as you look at populations, because they've done a lot of research in terms of the patient journey, age, sex, demographics, what goes into, what is the patient thinking about diagnosis? What are they thinking in terms of treatment options? So an understanding of that would be important collaboration in working with the integrated delivery network. And likewise, once you identify a population, how do you work with those customers to potentially engage these high-risk patients. So instead of saying as a manufacturer, I uh, have a hotline or I have got a program to engage, how do you actually fit yourself into the way that organization is looking to work with those patients to effectively engage them? 
And the thing here is when you talk effective engagement, many times people are saying, is it a phone call? Is it a letter? Is it an app? They need to be thinking other things that are going on in the mind of the patient. So their comorbidities. And then getting the right message to the patient at the right time in a method that meets their communication preference. And then finally, the other piece that's critical here is how do I work with these systems to generate the relevant data for appropriate formulary and pathway positioning? So having a seat at the table to answer those questions that they may be asking as it relates to either functionality or resource utilization. And then last but not least, as organizations take on more risk, they're going to be looking for manufacturers to share in those risks. While it's still early or U.S., we really haven't figured out outcomes-based contracting, that's a competency that, that it will be critical for manufacturers to develop as we move into the future. I just have one follow-up question on that, and I am a little bit cognizant of time. The one thing that we have seen over the years is, for example, pharma putting together patient hubs, especially for rare diseases or you know specialty products. There's a kind of siloed, as you said, hotline that a patient can call, and, and maybe depending on the drug category, they can get nurse support or reimbursement assistance. So a number of different things, you know, services that the, the pharma company offers directly to patients. And I have heard over the years, IDNs, uh, integrated delivery networks or hospital systems, complaining about those hubs because the hospital system who is at risk for that patient and is attempting desperately to manage the care of the patient, as soon as they go into the hub, the pharma company is taking over and the hospital system no longer has any idea what's going on with that patient or what advice the, the hub is offering. So it gets into this kind of control issue. If you talk about it on the pharma side, of course, they're like, well, we want the patient name. We want control. How, in your experience, do you think that the majority of pharma companies these days have cottoned on to the idea that that actually in order to serve these health systems, these risk-bearing health systems, they need actually to relinquish some of that control? Because by serving the patient, in some ways, they are disserving the larger entity, which at the end of the day might actually negatively impact patient care. Yeah, I think the there's two elements there is one, which organizations are the organizations that you need to consider having a different collaborative relationship to engage patients. So that's something we talked about is this population-based care, novel methods for engagement that the manufacturer really can't do it alone. And across the board though, goal would be the patients are really, really struggling in the marketplace. We talked about the narrow formularies, narrowing provider networks, greater out-of-pocket, whether it be copay, coinsurance, high deductible. So there's a lot of disillusionment and confusion is with all this restriction, you're asking the patient to be a better decision maker. Uh, essentially, they're dealing with restricted choice. And the manufacturer implication here is really to support both the patients and to providers to make better informed decision making. This includes the disease, drug education, in the language of the patient, 
Likewise, how do you help the provider side facilitate discussions on therapy options while also in those therapy options where your product is appropriate, robust reimbursement services? So that at the end of the day, we talked about the mindset that has to be put in place is that what are we doing together with our customers to actually improve patient care? And what you want to deliver for the patient is this real consumer experience in terms of your drug, the education, reimbursement support, and it meets three things. It's very thorough, it's simple for them to understand, and they can get it in a timely manner. And I think that's the part that we were talking about. Has anybody really nailed it? Probably the answer is no, but that's the new competencies that have to be developed with the manufacturer and then in collaboration with your key customers who are actually touching the patient to actually deliver that consumer experience. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Paul. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really appreciated, Stacy. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.